All right, we're looking this evening at verses 24 and 25 of the epistle of Jude, the conclusion of this letter, which we have come to appreciate, to admire, and also to be edified in and by. We note, first of all, that word doxa, which appears twice in these last two verses. That is the Greek word for glory, and is so translated in your English versions once in verse 24 and again in verse 25. Now, the fact that it occurs in these two verses suggests once again what we've observed of Jude's style, namely he is fond of symmetrical replication or symmetrical duplication. Having said that, it also reminds us that he is of Semitic background, and this is a typical Jewish literary or rhetorical device. Once again, it argues strongly for the provenance of this epistle coming out of a Jewish context and even particularly out of the brother of our Lord context in Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee. So that verses 24 and 25 are described as a doxology or doxology. That's where we get the word, comes from the Greek word, the words of glory, literally. A doxology then is a peon. That is, it's an expression of praise extolling the glory or the doxa of God the Lord. There are a number of doxologies in the New Testament. This one here in Jude is not alone, though it is unique in a couple of ways as we will observe. I've given you some passages which are other examples of New Testament doxologies. I haven't given you the complete list, but since we're in the end of the book of Jude, if you would turn or glance down to the first chapter of the book of Revelation, which follows, and notice verses 5 and 6, you will observe another New Testament doxology which begins at the end of that fifth verse and continues into verse 6, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, doxology in the New Testament is a stylistic device, stylistic rhetorical pattern. It occurs numerous times, and it has a particular form. The form is always the same. There are four elements in the form, and I've uh, identified those elements in a somewhat alliterative style, as you can see, though uh, I'm not claiming any uh, scholarly Reflection in so doing. I'm simply attempting to make it under, easier for you to understand what a doxology is. It always has these four elements an addressee, an adscription, 
concomitance and conclusion. <clears throat> now, the addressee is always in the dative case <clears throat> in the Greek language. That means it is addressed to someone. That's what the dative case is in part in Greek. <clears throat> so, who's the addressee in a New Testament doxology? Anyone? God, okay, it's the person of God, yes. So, God is the addressee, or the object, of the doxology. <clears throat> now, what goes along with the address to God is the adscription. Now, that's an older form of the English word ascription, so I'm increasing your Scrabble vocabulary here, and it comes from the Latin adscribo, which means to write towards or to assign. <clears throat> All right, so who is what what is being assigned to God? Glory. Glory, correct. The assignation or the adscription is glory be to God. <clears throat> Always the same every place where a doxology occurs in the New Testament, this is the repeated <clears throat> and common pattern. Third, <clears throat> what's concomitant with the glory addressed to God? Now, the word concomitance means, anyone? To go along with, correct. So what's concomitant with the glory addressed to God? It is the forever duration. It is the eternal duration. May you be glorified. May God receive the glory forever and ever. In other words, that eternity feature is always there. As ascribing to God, glory forever and ever. And finally, the conclusion. And what's the conclusion? Amen. Amen to that answer. Amen. All right, now what does the word amen mean? So be it. So be it. So be it. All right. That's one way of expressing it. I agree. Not quite. Sometimes may it be so. Okay? As if there's some doubt about it. When you say, so be it, it's a little more firm. Here, we want to underscore the fact that it is so. With a exclamation point. The amen in the doxologies here are not potential. There's not some suggestion that it may come to pass. It may be so. The doxology is an emphatic declaration that it is so. Amen. Sadly, on a personal footnote, this is a tragedy of the modern hymn books removing the amens from the end of the hymns. It, re it does not allow the congregation to close with an affirmation in song of, It is so. This is true. What we are singing is a representation of our faith which is true. 
in our singing, in our experience, in our liturgical praise, etc. Not just in a doxology per se, but even in the hymns, I lament the loss of the amens from the hymnals because we have lost a way of affirming in a choral amen, congregational amen, what we just sung about. No, they're not going to come back. I know I'm old-fashioned. But contemporary worship could use some old-fashioned stuff. And the amens at the end of what people sing would be a good way of starting. Who knows? In 50 years, maybe contemporary worship will include hymns that have amens because it would be so brand new. I told you it was my personal footnote. All right. Now, the next thing to note about our two-verse doxology is the occurrence of the alpha privative. Now, we have talked about the alpha privative frequently in this epistle. It is the, the initial alpha or A letter of the Greek alphabet in front of a word. And there are two alpha privatives in this doxology. The first is literally rendered by my abrupt and awkward English, stumbleless or fallless. It is the word that is translated without stumbling or without falling. King James translated it without falling. New American Standard translates it without stumbling. That is, the negation of stumbling, without it, not stumbling, stumbleless. Now, the second alpha privative in my over-literal rendition is blameless or faultless. Blameless in the New American Standard, faultless in the King James as without fault or without blame. But there's another uh, nuance here, and that is blemishless, without blemish, meaning not moral blemish. This doesn't mean that you don't have pimples or something like that. That's not the kind of blemish that's being described here. This is the blemish of sin. All right, now, uh, why has he used these terms at the doxological close of his letter. You will notice that this is a declaration of God's power to keep us from falling, but to enable us to stand. Now you understand why he's done it. These are reverse vectors. In other words, in the presence of God's glory... There is no falling or stumbling. There is a standing. There is an uprightness within the glory of his presence. This is not referring to our sanctification in this world. This is projecting us into the doxological arena, the arena of God's glory Himself, And in that arena, you will not fall. You will be kept from falling. You will have no blame laid to your account. 
There will be no fault charged against you. That blame will be reversed. You will be without fault. The reverse vector again. So he's projecting this dimension in which this doxology is fully expressed. And those who are present in that arena receive the assurance that there will be no falling, no stumbling, no tripping, no moral lassitude or fault or blemish in that dimension, in that arena. Where is that arena? It is in the presence of God's glory, which is his glory presence. So we're going to use the phrase glory presence to refer to the presence of God's glory. This arena and dimension of his majestic heavenly glory. Well, what is it? What is this glory presence? What is this presence of the glory of God? It is the glory of the triune Lord which emanates from and surrounds his ontological being, his divine essence, his God stuff, his very Godness. That emanation surrounding him in the arena where his presence is perfectly without block block or hindrance without any diminution by means of the creation where that brilliance of his presence is manifest to perfection and where do we find this glory presence this arena this perfect manifestation of the eminence of his glory, where do we find it? Most particularly in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in Revelation chapter 4. In those two chapters, we harvest the imagery of the vision of God's glory described by the prophet in Babylon at the river Kibar and prescribed by the seer at Patmos. Interesting, is it not? Both of these visionaries who saw the glory of God and described it were not in Jerusalem. They were not even in the promised land. They were far off from the center of what the Jews regarded as the capital of the world. Well, what do we find as we combine the narratives of Ezekiel's vision, who saw those wheels turning way up in the middle of the air, he did? John, who was in the spirit on the Lord's day, on the Lord's day, On the Sabbath, Lord's Day, he was in the Spirit. 
Here's what they saw. He saw the splendor of the glory of the Lord. The splendor of his glory as a fiery radiance flashing like the brilliant light of a blinding lightning bolt. This resplendence accompanied by peals of thunder. Thunder crashing like a chorus of shock and awe at the great magnificence of the Lord of all the cosmos. Effulgent rumbles rolling in cascades from his dazzling presence, rolling, rumbling, radiating, shining outward, shining upward, shining onward through the endless regions of eternity, world without end. Cascading, flowing, illuminating both his presence and the arena of his presence, both his usia, his essence, his essentia, his ontos, illuminating both his essential being and the presence of his being all around him, illuminated by his glory, his glory presence, alive with his own uncreated light, presence of his glory roiling with the thunderclap of his majesty throughout the everlasting spheres. God all-glorious, triune Lord all-wondrous, Lord God, source of presence of semp eternal doxa. And that glorious presence is reflected in stark refulgence from the crystal sea. Crystal sea which lies beneath his feet and spreads out surrounding his glory presence with an icy sheen. Brilliant, dazzling mirror, mirror of his radiant presence, his luminous person, his exceeding great glory, such that even angels cover their faces before his throne, so radiantly bright and blinding is the reflection from that crystal sea of his glory. <clears throat> Cover their faces before his throne. His throne. His throne of glory. His throne in the presence of his glory. His glory throne of his glory presence. His lapis lazuli throne astride the crystal sea, supporting his fiery radiance, 
rocking with the thunderclaps of his presence, azure blue seat of his glory, deep blue, lavish blue, empyrean lapis lazuli blue. This is the seat of his glory. Azure blue upon the crystal sea, radiant, glorious, cerulean scene, rich and lavish with the richness and lavish nature and quality of his glory presence. And arched around the glory presence. This azure throne mounted upon the ice crystal sea, arched around his glory presence, bowed about this fiery brilliance, this thunder seat, this royal chair of royal color, round this glorious being, this glorious resplendence, this glorious throne, this glory reflecting ICC round about the arc of a rainbow. The circle of an emerald rainbow, the arch of a heavenly bow, a prism of the light of his radiance, green and blue and white and all the colors of the rainbow in the heavens, this bow of color around the glorious God, creator of all color, bowed by every hue, reflecting, mirroring, shining forth his brilliance, his radiance, his effulgence, his inherent, uncreated glory. This is the glory of the Lord in the presence of his glory. And to this, he invites you. In this, he deigns to enfold you. By this, he wills to illumine you. With this, he glorifies you, permits you to behold his glory presence face to face, allows you to see his glory eye to eye, draws you to the mirror of his glory and that crystal sea and the azure throne and the emerald rainbow and the rolling, rumbling thunder. This he reveals to you that you may behold 
his glory. And so confess. Glory to God. And again I say, glory to God. And the third time I say, glory be to God, in whose presence is this lavish, this sumptuous, this beauteous glory. I have not seen, but you have heard the vision described. It is greater than all that. But you have beheld a part of its brilliance, even the part that Ezekiel saw. And John saw, you have beheld that glory, but there is more to the story that you have not yet beheld. Do you not long for that day when you will behold the glory in all of its fullness? with no dim cloud of unknowing between you and the throne of your triune Lord, God, and Savior. True beauty begins with God. True beauty is not in the ugliness of this ugly, sinful world, true beauty and glory and majesty and brilliance and loveliness, true beauty is in God. Why do Christians seek to cheapen that beauty? Why do Christians allow themselves to be bound up with the ugliness of black, ugly, wretched sin. God, all glorious, all beauteous, invites you to the radiance of his glorious loveliness. That's where your delight should be That's where your heart should be. That's what you should be seeking to mirror and reflect. Not living a life of dark, dreary, ugly depravity and delight in gothic skin ugly wretched clothing and garb no no well we ask how is this possible 
And the doxology answers that in terms of two persons. God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We dare not omit the adverb, only in God our Savior, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jude was a Protestant, you see. He did not believe, as the papist church believes, that it is not only God and Jesus Christ, it is your penitential works. It is your indulgences purchased. It is your good merits earned. Such rubbish Jude would have deemed absurd and blasphemous. You will stand in his presence only through God the Savior. Not through any human being sitting on a chair in Rome. Not through any system of buying for forgiveness or pardons for sins. Not for any efforts of works that you perform or merits that you earn or thinking that you deserve something because you made a pilgrimage to some place where the Virgin Mary's face was supposedly seen. Only, says Jude, in God our Savior, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. That only is the difference between heaven and hell. The Reformation isn't over. And if most mainline Protestants think it is is over, more's the pity for them. And if the Orthodox Presbyterian Church seems to be approaching the day when they think that Reformation is over, more's the pity for the OPC and the other Reformed churches that seem to be jumping along on the Canterbury Trail. What is this nonsense in Reformed and Orthodox Presbyterian circles about merit? What is this garbage that passes for some kind of esteemed scholarly orthodoxy? It is utter rubbish. As John Calvin would have called it, brain-sick rubbish. Whoever in the 16th century Reformation citadels, whether it was Wittenberg, Geneva, Zurich, Strasbourg, or any other magisterial location of the Protestant Reformation, whoever said that my good works could earn me temporal blessings in my life. No Protestant ever said that. Why do we have Protestants saying it today, writing it, publishing it, and these Protestants, even ministers of Reformed denominations? Enough. Enough. Enough of this absurdity. Only through God our Savior, only through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
Oh, well, we don't be equipped. We won't say that you're earning eternal merits or eternal blessings. If you can't earn an eternal blessing, how are you ever going to earn an earthly blessing? If the greater is impossible, how can you get the lesser? Now we even hear them talking about congruent merit. Congruent merit for earning the inheritance of the promised land. Congruent merit is a medieval Roman Catholic doctrine of earning God's favor temporally. Have we come to that? Yes, we have. It's on the audio of the Internet. It's been spoken and said publicly. That's what we've come to. Oh, it's only by Jesus if you're going to heaven. But it's by my good works if I want to get blessings in the world. Don't forget the adverb. Only. Allows me to make comments about the contemporary lack of only. On the theological landscape of the modern Protestant and Reformed world. All right, so with respect to the order of the language in verse 25, the Greek text is quite interesting. The first phrase, God our Savior, literally reads, only God, Savior, our. The second clause, in the order of the Greek text, reads, through Jesus Christ, the Lord, our. Now you will notice what Jude did. With respect to God, the Savior, at the end of that phrase, he put the pronoun our. With respect to Jesus Christ, the Lord, at the end of that phrase, he put the pronoun our. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? God, only God, Savior, ours. Through Jesus Christ, the Lord, ours. Do you see why he did it? He put it at the end of the clause in order to give you possession of what's before it in the clause. Possession. God, the Savior, is ours. God, the Savior, is our possession. He has taken possession of us by salvation. 
We are in possession of him through salvation. He possessed us. We possess him. He is ours. The Lord Jesus Christ is ours. Our possession. The Lord Jesus has taken possession of us by salvation and we are in possession of him through salvation. We belong to him for he has saved us. He belongs to us for he is our precious savior. Do you see what the hour does when it's placed at the end of the two persons of the Trinity in this boxology, God the Father and God the Son? Do you see what the hour does? The hour places you in an intimate, mutual self-possession. An intimate, mutual self-possession. Us in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God and the Lord Jesus Christ in us. An intimate, mutual self-possession. Our God and Savior. Our Lord Jesus. God the Father and God the Son. Our saved sinners. You do want to belong, don't you? Isn't belonging an important part of 21st century life? Isn't this modern, postmodern 21st century looking for belonging? Isn't that the endless search for the millennial generation that they might belong? I have a radical suggestion. God is inviting you to belong to him. Christ is inviting you to belong to him. Belong to God the Father, God the Son, and to the salvation that is in him. You want to belong. He will never disappoint you, nor will he ever forsake you. And he will always be your heavenly Father. And Jesus will always be your elder brother. There is a belonging of intimate self-possession which the gates of hell itself cannot break. Come and welcome to such belonging and possession. Why will you die? Why will you perish in your misery like an orphan cast out with no, no place to belong. Stop trying to belong in the bars and in the dives and in the brothels and in the sodomy centers. Stop trying to belong. There's no belonging there. 
come to Christ and belong to him. Regardless of what your past has been, come to Christ and belong to him. And he will adopt you as his own son and daughter. And he will introduce you into his heavenly family from which he will never cast you out. All right, now one more point with respect to the form of this doxology. The word that some of you have in your King James Bible, the only wise God, our Savior, is a word that appears in the Textus Receptus, that is, that version or tradition of the Greek New Testament text. That word wise is not in the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. The example that I use is P72, which dates from the 3rd or early 4th century and has a virtual complete copy of the Epistle of Jude in it. It's a papyrus manuscript. Where then did the King James or the Texas Receptus get this idea of inserting the word, the only wise God, our Savior, in verse 25? They probably inserted it from recalling Romans 16, verse 27, where it does occur and appear. But the Texas Receptus in 1 Timothy 1, 17 does the same thing that they do here in Jude 25. They make the insertion wise God in the doxology there. Once again, the Texas Receptus does not have the support of the oldest Greek New Testament manuscripts, And therefore, the New American Standard, as you see here in verse 25, does not include the word wise and the more modern versions based upon the best manuscript evidence does not include the word only wise God. It's been glossed in. It's been inserted in by some copy, some scribe who was copying this because he remembered what Paul had said in Romans 16, 27. All right, it's time for our break. So uh, we'll stretch our legs and uh, get our refreshments. And once again, uh, so that you do not come next week and find the door closed against you. And Denison absent. And not because he's tardy, and not because he's sick, but because he told you he's taking a week off. All right, we will not meet next week as we are finishing Jude this evening. But on February 7th, which will be the first Thursday of uh, the next month, we will begin the book of Zephaniah, uh, opening the first chapter of that very interesting minor prophet to your edification, I trust. So, do not come back next week, but the week after, we go back to the Old Testament. You see, we vacillate. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. We go back and forth. Take your break.
Now, I want to come back to verse 24 to enlarge upon the verb here, which is the infinitive to keep. And this verb in the Greek has the suggestion of a captive, a captive who is being guarded and protected by his captor or his guardian. It's an interesting Greek word that Jude uses because it is, of course, Jude's own existential experience. He was captured by the Lord Jesus, his elder brother. We don't know exactly when that captivity occurred, when he became the bond servant, as he calls himself in the first verse, when he became the bond servant of his older brother, but we know it happened. And so it's appropriate here that he echoes with a term which, at first glance, seems somewhat negative. And yet, it is very positive in explaining Jude's own experience. And so he uses that as an an opening to this uh, declaration for the community to echo. To echo what has happened to him. To echo the captivation which has captivated him. And what is that captivation? It's the glory presence of God, as we've already underscored. But this keeping, this being captivated, this being guarded and protected, guarded and protected, captivated because you might fall or stumble, it is unto the purpose of standing blameless, standing faultless, before the presence of his glory. You've been captured. You've been captivated. You are being guarded and protected that you may stand blameless, without fault, before the presence of his glory. Now, there's a reciprocal element here. There's a reciprocal element in which you are captivated by the glory itself. The glory itself captivates you. It captures you with the beauty and wonder of the arena from which it arises. You are captivated by the glory as well as by the person of that glory. You are captivated by God himself. God alone, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ alone, the the Lord and Redeemer. You are captivated by the Godhead. And in that glorious captivity, you are enveloped in the glory of his presence. You are drawn, you are drawn irresistibly into that glory. Why would you resist? You're drawn irresistibly into that glory. He draws you with the cords of his love 
He draws you unto himself. He draws you irresistibly unto himself. Why would you kick against the pricks? Why? Why would you say, I don't want your glory, Lord? No, you hunger and thirst for the glory of the Lord. And not only does he draw you into it, but you're embraced by it and by him who is the source of it. You're enfolded by it and enfolded by him who is the source of it. You're enwrapped by that glorious person. You are literally hugged round by his glory as he throws his arms of glory around you folds you in his own everlasting embrace. And as he wraps you round with his glory, he wraps you round with his upright, blameless, unblemished person. He is blameless, standing upright, upstanding, as the Brits say. Let us be upstanding. God is upstanding. He is upright because he is gloriously and perfectly righteous. The Lord Jesus is that spotless, unblemished Lamb of God who takes your blame who bears your blemishes who carries your faults who takes upon himself your moral stains and washes all of that whiter than snow whiter than snow through his precious blood no stumbling in the presence of his glory. No falling in the presence of his glory. He has enclosed you in his uprightness. His uprightness. The uprightness of God the Savior through Jesus Christ the Lord. You are captivated captivated by his spotless perfection, by his vicarious blood cleansing, by his upstanding righteousness, all of that Christ has gained for you and gives to you. You come with no fear into the presence of his glory because you are dear, upright, blood-shedding, spotless Savior has gone the road of history before you. He has taken your history into his own so that you may make his history your own. That is glory. That will be glory. 
glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And all this fills your heart with joy. All this lifts your heart, brings the smile of exaltation to your soul, brings the smile of exaltation to your soul as it resounds with the chords of this glorious doxology. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You cannot hear that without smiling. You cannot read that without smiling. You cannot hear and read it by faith without exceeding joy. This, this is the language of the joyful heart. Glory to God. Glory be to God. Like the smile of joy when you lift up your heart to sing the magnificent Paul Gerhard hymn, Why Should Cross and Trial Grieve Me? Or when you lift up your heart to the jubilant Welsh hymn, Sung Die, Round the Lord in Glory Seated. Or the powerful Charles Wesley hymn, And can it be? Does your heart not resound with joy? Do you not sing with a smile upon your face? Even that modern classic by Andrea Crouch and that wonderful chorus, To God Be the Glory. These are doxological hymns. These are doxological hymns which fill our voices, our faces, our overflowing souls with joy. Exceeding great joy for the glorious God, our Savior, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Then why? Why are morning worship services in Reformed churches like funeral services? Why is there no smile upon the face of those who sing? Why are faces buried in the hymnal and not looking up to the sky and to the heavens and to God himself? Why do you not sing glory be to God and smile about it? No, you don't have to be runaway, happy, clappy people as if there's nothing else except that kind of idiocy. Reverent joy. 
but exhilarating, reverent joy. At least stick a smile on your face. It's easier to sing with a smile than it is with a frown or a deadpan. Try it. You'll like it. It's a joy to sing to the Lord. Do you think those psalmists were singing? <laughs> there are great hymns in these hymnals of ours. Hymns that lift you up to the glory of God. Then go up to the glory of God with the hymn you sing. And smile. Do you think you're going to stand before the throne of God's glory with a frown on your face? Mm, I don't. I don't. I don't really want to be here. You're not going to sit there with a, or stand there with a frown on your face. Oh, that will be glory. There's a good hymn, isn't there? Oh, that will be glory. All right. This is doxological stuff. And doxology is part of singing. So let's sing with praise to the glory of God with at least a pleasant look on our face as if we're enjoying what we're doing when we come to worship. To this wondrous Lord God our Savior belongs all the honor and dignity and praise of this doxological peon. To him be glory. To this wonderful Lord God, our Savior, belongs all the majesty and greatness due his glorious name and being. To him be the majesty. To this wondrous Lord God, our Savior, belongs all the power and strength and dominion consistent with his ineffable glory. To him be the dominion. And to this wondrous Lord God, our Savior, belongs all the prerogative and sovereignty, which is the right and due of his doxological authority. To him be authority. All this glory, majesty, dominion, and authority extolled to Jesus Christ the Lord, even God our Savior. But he's not done. His conclusion ends with the rule of threes. Jude ends his letter with his literary thumbprint. The mark of his rhetorical style is true to the end. As he began in verse 2, with his rule of threes, so he ends in verse 25 with his rule of threes. Jude, the three Peter. Jude, the lover of the triad. Jude, the accomplished user of the triplet. Now, this Greek text is quite explicit. English translations don't bring it out 
So we need to do it literally from the Greek version. The first phrase of this threefold close to his doxology is literally before all eons or before all ages. The second phrase is both now and. It's interesting that the and conjunction chi in Greek is on either side of the now word. So, bracketing or framing the now is the and word. And or both now and. And the third phrase, literally from the Greek, is to or unto all eons or ages. So that the literal translation of his final triplet would read as follows. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all ages or eons, both now and unto all ages or eons. Amen. Now, what does he mean by doing what no other doxology in the New Testament does? Ah, there is no other doxology in the New Testament. Jude alone is unique with this complete time continuum. No other doxology is a full-orbed time continuum as Jude composes for us here. Past, present, and future. Before all ages, both now, time, present, and unto all ages, time, future, past, present, future, only Jude and Jude only does it. And he does it with the brilliance of his rhetorical style by sandwiching between eternity. Now time. Why on earth did he do that, Denison? Before all ages, eternity passed, time passed. Unto all ages, eternity, future, time, future. And in between, eternity passed. And in eternity future, now, now. Because the now, which is the focus of our life, the now is not eternal. It is placed in the sandwich between eternity to underscore the inexorable absence of eternity from the present. And yet, the double chi, the double and on either side of the now 
is a conjunction between eternity past and eternity future. The now is attached to the eternity of God's past and the eternity of God's future. As if to remind you that in the now time, God remains eternal. You may be temporal now, but you are attached by conjunction in your now to the eternal past and eternal future. The eternal one past, the eternal one future. The one who eternally has no past and future. You are sandwiched between him. Even as now you want to be sandwiched between the glory of God, who is from all eternity unto all eternity, and that glorious God folds you in between. Folds you in between as he folds you into his glory presence as your Savior through Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, you may say, Amen. Amen. For you have been folded in between the eternal God the Father, eternal God the Son. By implication of the last section, verses 20 to 23, the eternal God, the Holy Spirit. You have been folded in between the eternal God who dwells in unsearchable glory, the light of eternity, and has come to you to invite you into that timeless now forever dimension. As they say in Latin, excipit jude. This is the end of Jude. Any questions or comments? Bob. Praise uh, only God Savior Hour. Uh, that's a literal Greek translation. Is there in Greek could the word hour go anywhere else except at the end? It could. It could. So the reason he's positioned it here is, in my opinion, I make my suggestion as a suggestion. I'm not dogmatic. I, I'm. As I look at it, I ponder, why did he stick the pronoun at the end of these phrases? And my suggestion is that he's doing it to underscore the possessive character. We belong to him. So, yes, the hour could go before or after. There's no absolute rule of the position of the pronoun in Greek. 
Thank you for coming. Yes, Scott? You, you know, when it, he talks about uh, all boring and union power being Christ uh, and God our Savior, is there any contrast to the situation of the other people in the epistle? In other words, he's saying God has this, not these others. Yes, there is. I, I did not have time to develop that. But the antithesis is there to keep you from falling as those in the wilderness did fall, as those angels did fall, in verse 6, as the Sodomites did fall, as Korah did fall, and so on. In other words, what we've seen as this juxtaposition uh, between these interlopers or intruders who are uh, being exposed to the judgment of God's wrath. Uh, This is the antithesis of that. But the imagery here of stumbling and falling and being blameworthy, uh, that's that's the antithetical other side of the language here, which I did not develop because uh, that would have taken me more time than I had. But it's there. It is there. Thank you for coming. Lord willing, see you in two weeks. If you wish to take on Zephaniah with me.